Holy Word. It's the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 12. Our focus this morning will be on verses 7 through 17. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Jeremiah 12, 1 through 17. Righteous are you, O Yahweh, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Yahweh, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it. For the beast and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, How will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of the prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts and bring them to devour Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it cries, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of Yahweh devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given to my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass that they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as Yahweh lives. Even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares Yahweh. This 
is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on we, your creatures, who have roared against our Lord. Forgive us our rebellions even after having come to know your redemption. A greater redemption than Israel had known at this point. Or rather a redemption known more fully. Father, forgive us for all your goodness and kindness which you've lavished upon us and we either take for granted or we idolize. Thank you for the astounding hope that overwhelms all our sinfulness that despite all this you will make us new Completely and totally. And all creation knew as well. Move our hearts to gratitude and thankfulness now as we look at your word. And save souls now, Father, from your holy hatred and righteous wrath. In Christ we pray. Amen. God made dirt, and from that dirt, He made man. He planted a garden, which is wild in itself. We plant seeds. We plant maybe a sapling. God planted a garden, we're told, in Genesis 2. And He placed man in that garden. And all was blessed, and all was very good. But man rebelled against God's rule and was driven out of the garden. And yet a promise was given. The promise. The promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, reversing the curse, bringing salvation by judgment. Soon in the biblical narrative, not so soon historically, but soon as far as the story unfolds for us, we come to a man named Abraham who was basically promised in covenant grace three things. Land, offspring, and that being blessed, he would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And throughout Abraham's story, the tension is this, we're waiting for... A seed. And all the hope that we anticipate is bound in the loins of Abraham. Whenever God redeems his people out of Egypt, bringing them to the land promised to the patriarchs, their forefathers, it 
is rooted in this promise made to Abraham. And that promise to Abraham being rooted in the garden. And then further, whenever God promises in covenant love to David that his son will build a house for him. We're looking for that king who will crush the serpent's head and make all things new. That promise draws its sap and life. That promise has roots, you see, back in the garden. Now, some, has, some have summarized this story, the story of the way things should have been and the story of the way things will be. Some have summarized the story as the story of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Graham Goldsworthy answers, The New Testament has a great deal to say about the kingdom, but we may best understand the concept in terms of the relationship of ruler to subjects. That is, there is a king who rules, a people who are ruled, and a sphere where this rule is recognized as taking place. Put another way, the kingdom involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. Whenever man rebels against this rule, he is driven from God's place and forsaken so that they are no longer God's people. And so then... With our text this morning, with Jeremiah as we've seen it unfolding. As this land is left desolate and forsaken because of her rebellion, it seems as as if the hopes of all mankind have dried up with it. How can blessing take root in the soil of our sin and its curse? Only the farmer who makes his own dirt. Only the farmer who can plant gardens could possibly grow a garden in such a desert. And you'd be right to think that if he were to do so, he would begin by making old things new. Totally new. But before we consider A gracious restoration. Let's look at this just destruction. Concerning the destruction. God isn't subtle. It is emphatic. Verse 7. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. There is no lack of clarity concerning the state of Judah and why she is in such a place. God has forsaken His house. God has abandoned His heritage. God has given the beloved of His soul into the hands of her enemies. And remember, this is continuing the answer that Yahweh is giving to Jeremiah concerning the complaint he raised. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And Yahweh has rebuked Jeremiah, telling him not that he needs to be nicer, but that he needs to be tougher. He needs to endure. Explaining to him, That it is not only those men of his hometown, Anathoth, but his very kinsmen, those of his father's household, his brothers who are conspiring against him. And he should not trust him, though they say sweet things with their mouths, they are plotting murder in their hearts. So some venture that Yahweh is now, at this point, sympathizing with Jeremiah, telling him that 
he understands that, that kind of family turmoil. That he's forsaken his house. He has given his beloved into the hands of her enemies. And while there's a bit of that, I think the stronger element that's involved here is that whereas Jeremiah was ignorant of the duplicity of his brothers, Yahweh, who, chapter 11 and verse 20, tests the heart and the mind, Yahweh is not ignorant concerning the infidelity of his beloved. He knows that though he's near their mouths, verse 2, their hearts are far from him. And so, Jeremiah, do you see, the wicked will not prosper. The treacherous will not thrive. They will be forsaken, abandoned, and given into the hands of their enemies. The primary reference in each of these, house, heritage, beloved, the primary reference in every one of them is Judah herself. The the house is not the temple. The heritage is not the land. The heritage, verse 8, is a she. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice. And the she is his beloved, his bride, his people. But even so, the noun that's used, the imagery that's evoked by it, helps you to understand what the verb means. The house is forsaken. The house, you think of the temple. That place where God dwelled with His people in covenant love by sacrifice. And consider the way that this is built up in Ezekiel. As Ezekiel presents to us in in such bold, vivid, gripping imagery, the glory of our God in those early chapters. And then you come to chapter 10. You see the glory of God departing from the temple. Israel is to be Ichabod. The glory departing from her. When he leaves the house, he's forsaking his people, not simply a residence. The heritage was the land that was promised to their fathers. It was to be their possession forever, to be handed on to their Progeny, one after another. Whenever the land was sold, it was only sold in reference to the year of Jubilee in which it was to revert back to the original owners. So Yahweh, you see, having forsaken His house and abandoned your heritage, this makes sense of what it means for them to be given over to the hands of their enemies. He is no longer there to protect them. He's no longer their refuge. He's no longer their shelter, their sanctuary. He has left the house. He's abandoned the land. His bride is now vulnerable to his enemies. Indeed, he has given her over in doing so to her enemies. Why would he do such a thing? Verse 8, because like a wild lion, she has roared against him. All sin, all treachery is worth such wrath as we see unfold here. But whereas some sins whisper treachery, others roar it. Israel has come, Judah has come to this point of roaring 
rebellion. She whispers love with her rituals, but her infidelity shouts against her husband. And the result is that, we're told, verse 8, therefore he hates her. Many are quick to jump in here and say, well, hate doesn't mean hate. I don't see anything in the context that says anything otherwise than that hate means hate. We're often told today that God hates sin but loves the sinners. Which is about as nonsensical as saying that you hate guns but love murderers. Although that's something very much that our culture is trying to tell us. We can say, which makes sense, We've already bought the bigger lie. Psalm 5, 5 through 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm eleven five. His soul hates the wicked. Know this. That outside of God's covenant love in Christ... Though he is merciful, though he is long-suffering, though he is patient, though he is benevolent and caring in, on his creation in general and in common grace, know this, that if you are not in covenant love with God in his Son, Jesus Christ, you abide under the holy hatred and righteous wrath of God Almighty. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, without God and having no hope in the world. And if you back up in Ephesians, it tells you what is the state of our soul whenever we were in this position. It says we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you are separated from Christ, if you are outside of His covenant people, if you do not have any participation in His covenants, this is your position. You are a child of wrath. Left to ourselves in Adam, we are covenant breakers. And as such... Just recipients of his holy hatred. David Wells explains that God's wrath is a way in which God's holiness finally engages all that is wrong, all that has defiled this world, all that has defiled his law, all that has rejected his rule, and all that has spurned his love expressed in Christ. It is the pure reaction of God to all that is impure. It is the dissatisfaction that arises within God over all that is other than what should be. All that is dark, all that is still, that all that still has a raised fist, wrath is his repudiation of all of that. And so forsake covenant, roar against his rule and his son. And know that God's holy hatred, his righteous wrath, is nothing other than what we see unfold in this text, and it abides on your soul. And so it is that his heritage is left desolate, described as a hyena's lair, with birds of prey circling around waiting to devour what might be left. And then they calls all the wild beasts to come and devour, feast on her. You remember in chapter 7 where of the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
Shechinim, where the Israelites would offer up and worship their children and sacrifice to Molech. You remember that of that, God declares, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beast of the earth, and none will frighten them away. This desolate condition is brought about because many shepherds destroy the vineyard. They've trampled it down. Who are these shepherds? Many times have we read through Jeremiah, we've thought of this as the shepherds are brought up. We're, we're calling to mind the prophets and uh, the, particularly the kings and the, the kingly administration. Here though, these are the same, pro, the same shepherds excuse me, who are mentioned in chapter 6 and verse 3. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents around her. They shall pasture each in his place. These are kings. These are military leaders that have come against her. These shepherds that have trampled her are the enemies into whose hands he has given her. They are the wild beasts. They are, verse 12, the destroyers that come upon her. 2 Kings 24.2 identifies these shepherds telling us that whenever King Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, Yahweh sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Why would God allow these pagan shepherds to trample his vineyard so? He told us in chapter 2 and verse 21 that though he planted a choice vine, holy of pure seed, he asked, how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? It's no faithful, good vineyard that God gives over to these enemies to trample down, but one that has been infested and choked by thorns. You see, being less desolate now, this land mourns, but it mourns not with the tears that lead into repentance. Because no man takes it to heart. This is not the kind of mourning that leads to repentance, but a worldly mourning. On all the bare heights, verse 12, destroyers have come. I take these, these bare heights to be synonymous with the high places where they lewdly committed spiritual idolatry. Idolatrous whoredoms. In chapter 2 and verse 20, Yahweh said, yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. These are the places known as the high places where they would, they would perversely in gross sexual immorality worship these pagan gods. And in chapter 3 and verse 2, these high hills are linked to the bare heights. Yahweh calls for His unfaithful bride to lift your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. And then in chapter 3 and verse 21, 729, we see them mourning on these bare heights, I think precisely because they've been laid bare, they've been destroyed. That's the kind of mourning that's involved here. It's a mourning and weeping, not in repentance, but precisely because of their idolatry. And again, there's no doubt, Yahweh does this. When these destroyers come, these destroyers are His sword devouring. 
from one end of the land to the other, such that there is no peace. When God goes to war, there can be no peace found anywhere for you. It matters not with whom you have peace if you have it not with God. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies, God reconciled us to Himself by the death of His Son. But if you are not reconciled to the Father in Christ, you have no peace with God. You are His enemy. His righteous wrath abides on your soul. His holy hatred is certain unless you flee to Christ. No peace can be found in any other way. See, all this desolation is so despite all their efforts, verse 13. They've sown wheat and reaped thorns. They've tired themselves out but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of Yahweh. They toil, but it's all vain. When Adam sinned, he was told that by the sweat of his brow he would eat bread. But this is beyond this. This curse is spelled out in the law, Leviticus 26, 16. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Deuteronomy 28 is, is the fullest treatment of all the curses that would come upon Israel for her infidelity. And there's a lot in there that deals with what would happen to the land for her sin, should she break covenant. But verses 38 through 42 are the most concentrated treatment. You shall carry much seed out into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. And though these things are indeed a reality, I think this is to be understood more broadly and metaphorically as well. Despite everything they do, they cannot prevent the judgment of God coming against them. It doesn't matter if they flee to the city. It doesn't matter if they fortify. It doesn't matter what they do. Toil as they may, they will hang their heads in shame when the anger of God comes upon them. You can't outwork the curse. You can't outwork it by your works of self-righteousness. You cannot outwork it by your wickedness. You can't outwork it by legalism. You cannot outwork it by libertinism. You cannot by your self-righteous efforts prune and de-weed to create paradise anew. And you cannot keep sowing sin. Because sin is fun when it's young and it's tender. You can't keep sowing sin to its joy, its pleasures, without eventually reaping the harvest of thorns. You're just amassing more and more condemnation and judgment, not less. All your efforts are vain, and one day you will hang your head in shame. When the anger of Yahweh is brought to bear upon your soul. And so again, do you not see that if there's any hope for a garden to bloom in the soil of our sin and its curse, it can only happen 
by God's immeasurable grace and infinite power. Nothing less. But if all this is part of an answer of Yahweh to Jeremiah's complaint, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Haven't we just relocated the problem? God uses the wicked to judge the wicked. What about the wicked who has the sword in his hand rather than in his heart? What do we do with him? And God answers. Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors who touch my heritage that I've given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. Yahweh here is going to speak concerning all these evil neighbors. They are the focus of the rest of this passage. And yet it's surprising that in this we find not only hope for Judah, as those who have oppressed her are judged, but we find hope for all the nations here as well. Concerning his evil neighbors, Yahweh will pluck them up and he will pluck up his people from among them. The tables are going to be reversed. Judah will be delivered. The nations will be exiled. And so whenever God uses the wicked, that shouldn't be taken as an endorsement. God uses crooked sticks to hit straight licks. He uses the switch to discipline his children, but then he will break that switch over his knee and cast it into the flame as as well for its crookedness. So verse 15 then begins to unfold this hope of restoration. But we're left wondering exactly who's involved in this. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And so whenever we read, after I've plucked them up, I will again, the word again there is is the word that we've seen so often, again and again in Jeremiah, translated return. That's the fuller sense of the word. I will return in compassion upon them. And so this idea of returning in compassion makes you think this has to be Israel. I believe that's right. This is his people, Judah. But then whenever you read heritage, again, you're thinking, well, that means each each of his redeemed coming to that allotment that was the promised inheritance of their fathers. But, but then it says each to his land. And the way land has been used throughout this passage and most often regard, regards national land. He, he's plucked up Israel from her land. He's plucked up the nations from their land. And so then he, he's returning each to his land. What's involved in this? And then you go to verse 16 and you see that the they is clearly the nations. The enemies, the evil neighbors, it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people. Then you consider Deuteronomy chapter 32, where God says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God, but the But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. I believe what you're seeing here is God saying he's going to put things back the way he intended them to. And with that, you begin to anticipate that promise made to Abraham 
that in blessing his people, all the nations will be blessed. But we haven't quite got there yet because there's this further requirement laid out to the nations. They must diligently learn the ways of his people to swear by his name. Those who they once oppressed, they must now learn from. Walking in Yahweh's ways and swearing by His name are synonymous. The idea is that Yahweh is their Lord. He's their King. They've repented. They've turned from idolatrous worship of Baal. They've turned from teaching God's people how to worship idols to learning from God's people how to worship the true God. The significance of how this is phrased is really striking in light of Deuteronomy 6. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not feel, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. And now we're told that if the nations will diligently learn their ways, He will build them up within His people, Israel. What was said of Israel is now a hope held out for the nations. You remember whenever Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, 22, salvation is of the Jews? You remember whenever Paul preached, Paul, to those Jews in Antioch, Pisidia, he said that of David's offspring, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. In Romans 11, our participation in the covenant blessings and salvation of God is portrayed this way. We are wild branches being grafted into the olive tree. In Ephesians 2, we are told that we're no longer alienated from the commonwealths of Israel or strangers to the covenants of promise. And then we recently saw again and again, 1 Peter, that language that's used of Israel is appropriated to the church, the people of God, the true Israel, again And again, saints, this is us being built up in the midst of the people of God. You are tasting of these promises. And with this, do you see what's assumed? If the nations are learning from Israel, what's assumed here? that he's made Israel new. She's been changed. And this is in fulfillment of the promise he gives in chapter 32, the promise of the new covenant. Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. The people under his holy hatred, he promises in grace to bring back. He says, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. Do you understand the fuller context of this now? 
the one that he forsook and abandoned, such that she was delivered into the hands of her enemies. In the new covenant, he's saying, she will dwell in safety. Why? Because he dwells with her. This is his covenant vow. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of the covenant of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that will not turn away and I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. With all my heart and with all my soul. God's people, God's place, under God's rule, blessed and very good. But not all. Not all Israel is true Israel. And not all the nations will learn diligently and swear as Yahweh Christ lives. For those who do not, He will utterly pluck them up and destroy them. There is a sense of completeness and finality to the way this last verb, pluck, is constructed in contrast to the earlier plucking spoken of in verse 14. This is a decisive, ultimate, final plucking Plucking from which there's no return. And we know how we go from blessing to curse. From a garden to a wilderness. Sin. But how do you go from a particular curse to global blessing? How does that happen? For an answer, let's recall Jeremiah's calling. Chapter 1, verse 10. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. How can Jeremiah accomplish such a thing? And the answer is simply by being faithful to proclaim the word of God Almighty. Immediately following, following that statement, we read this. The word of Yahweh came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then Yahweh said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. I won't take time to unfold how almond relates to watching, except to say those words are nearly identical in Hebrew. But the point is that Yahweh watches over His Word. Nations will be plucked out, and nations will be planted. Nations will be broken down, and nations will be built up. Yahweh watched over His Word 
in faithfulness to the promise of the new covenant. To give them new hearts. And that ultimate word of redemption is the word incarnate. Jesus Christ. Can God grow blessing in the soil of our sin and its curse? That is precisely what He did when He planted by His Spirit the seed in the womb of the virgin. But for that garden to grow, He must first crush the seed and plant it dead in this earth. Jesus, the temple of God on this earth, was forsaken. Jesus, the Son and Heir of all things, abandoned. Jesus, the Beloved of His Father, given into the hands of His enemies. The ground shook. The sky grew dark and all seemed desolate as he was laid in the grave. But he arose, defeating sin and its curse, death and the serpent. Cursed in death, he rose. To bless. He is the first fruits of new creation. He's making all things new. And he begins that work in making his people new in Christ. And know this the plucking will not exceed the planting. Grace will build greater than sin is broke down. This is why we sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, and Newton was writing concerning his second coming, not his first advent. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Not only will blessings flow as far as the curse is found, but the blessing will bloom brighter than sin ever dulled. The salvation of Israel, we see swells here to engraft the nations. And the promise of a land, a heritage to His people, grows to a new creation, a new earth. Only the farmer of the cosmos could grow such a garden in a graveyard. And to do so, he planted the seed of his son's dead body in this earth. 
having been crushed and forsaken for our iniquities, to bloom with the light and glory of new creation in His resurrection. And so, saints, let us rejoice in this blessed hope. And sinners, repent, for there's no other hope than this. Let's pray. Father, praise be to you for your goodness and grace in Christ. We are rebels worthy only of your wrath. But in Christ you've made us heirs, heirs of the world to come, the age to come. You've given us with Christ all good things. Praise be to you. Thank you. That we cannot outsin your grace. That the curse does not triumph over your blessing to us in Christ. That the second Adam will provide a redemption fuller than the first Adam brought us all into condemnation. Praise be to your name. May we see your salvation and your kingdom come here and now as souls are made new by the gospel of Christ. Anticipating that day when we shall enjoy the fullness of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies and all things made new. Sin being made no more. It's curse, not a trace of it to be found. In Christ's name we praise and rejoice. Amen.